podcast i'm rocky snyder this week we're going to be talking about when shift happens that's right when you shift things here and there and all over the place three-dimensional training and who better to have on than michelle dalcor and michelle if you're not familiar with him and you haven't been to the perform better series of speaking and seminars over the years well first of all you missed out and you need to kind of look him up because when it comes to breaking away from the sagittal bias world in which traditional lifting is, has been unfortunately kind of cordoned in, he's one that's already breaking barriers and getting us to think with three-dimensionality. So, Michelle, welcome. Rocky, I appreciate you reaching out and having me on. Oh, I, I, I can't wait. This has been fun. I have attended many of your lectures and, and thoroughly enjoy it. You came up with a device which... Uh, honestly, it's one of those things that you just scratch your head going, why didn't I think of that? You know, it, it's, it's a very thick, hard, heavy rubber tubing with different holes and handles, and we call it the Viper. And Well, you invented that. I guess let's just start there. Were you just playing around in your backyard with some PVC tube or some plumbers came over and yeah. asked you to, to move some pipe? <laughs> you know, why didn't I think of that scratching? Is that code for it's so simple? And if it is, that's a compliment because... Um, you know, it really the, the genesis of the thought process behind um, the, the product was really uh, myself and a gentleman named Simon Bennett, who is a strength and conditioning coach, now performance director for the NHL, uh, and now proprietor of a gym actually up in Canada. But, you know, he and I went through the exploration uh, of training these hockey players when I actually first came out of university many moons ago. But, you know, it's almost cliche to say this, Rocky, but if I was, if you and I were to have a, just a discussion off, off the record, and we were talking about gym kids or city kids, and then we were talking about farm kids, and then someone approached us and said, you know, if a gym kid were to wrestle a farm kid or a city kid were to wrestle a farm kid, and you were a betting person, where would your money be? Chances are you and I would probably, you know, kind of collaborate and, and have a consensus that it's going to be on the farm kid. Yeah, and right. what's interesting about that when you dissect it is that most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, the farm kid interacts with load uh, that is submaximal with high degrees of freedom, right? So there is a bias towards lack of repetitiveness uh, and lack of specificity of angulation of force. And so when you, when you start to explore that a little bit, it, it gets ironic in a way. Um, it starts to raise some eyebrows, at least it did for us in a way, because what we're always thinking about is this idea of specificity having transferability into life and sport. And the idea of variability as specificity is an eyebrow raiser, right? Because in life, variability is specific to life demands, right? So variability is specificity. <laughs> and what, what happens is as our degrees of freedom begin to expand, i.e. I can move in the sagittal plane and I can move in the other planes of motion or different vector forces, then to enable that, I have to decrease load, right? I cannot have a high degree of load and expect degrees of freedom of my joints because the higher my load, the more I must respect the sagittal plane and for a very good reason. So we're big fans of that idea, right? Which is sagittal uh, respect to elicit high demands of, of load or force production, which elicits 
you know, type two fibers in, in Henneman's size principle, if you, if you look at muscle physiology. And that's awesome. And to us, we're always continuum-based thinkers, right? So while that's awesome, does the other side of that equation net a transferability into life? Meaning, all right, cool. If load goes down in degrees of freedom, Rocky can go up now. Now I've got more movement choice. And if I can start to load submaximally, but omnidirectionally, then you know what tissues receive that force, that mechanical force, and then how does that convert into cellular activity and tissue remodeling and otherwise, you know, making my body more unbreakable? And so when we look at it from that realm, it starts to unpack a pretty interesting perspective, right? Because if we can fortify the body with omnidirectional submaximal loading, uh, then we can start to pack lines of stress in different vectors. And once that happens, the body remodels along lines of stress, as we know, and then it reorder it remodels itself omnidirectionally. So collagen and, and elastin, reticulin, bone formation, uh, neural complexity, or so nervous formation or, or um, neurogenesis, um, all of these facets of physiology begin to assemble upon those different inputs. And then for us, the question wasn't an either or binary choice. It was a yes and yes. In other words, yes to the sagittal plane with high loads and, and yes to the submaximal idea of omnidirectional stress, because that's how we fortify the horsepower of our car and the chassis of our car. Yeah, well, we need that balance too, because if we have only one of those two elements, we'll be very good at those, but we won't be more encompassing in terms of our overall performance. If we're just loading that sagittal plane, it's requiring a lot of stability and we're kind of going on lockdown and we're preventing any extraneous movement. So that's not gonna carry well onto a basketball court if we're trying three-dimensional movement at a very quick and coordinated pace. And that's where the, the, the shift or the three-dimensional omnidirectional motion comes into play. But at the same time, I need power to produce a whole bunch of, of lifts or to push a, a, a defender out of my way to score a hoop or something, I'm going to need power at the same time. So so it's it's interesting because there has been a shift. I wish it was happening at a, uh, a, a more rapid pace, but we find that we're still in an industry that is holding on to, I must lift heavy all the time and not necessarily gravitating toward a blend between three-dimensional movements under submaximal load and loading the body. Are you finding that too? Yeah, although, yeah, I mean, what you're stating there is, um, is yeah, is a, is a complex narrative that is, has been engaged with, with on many levels. And I think, you know, I think there is a general bias still towards that way of thinking. Although in fairness, I would say in my experience anyway, in the conversations that I'm having with folks, there is a recognition on all of our parts, mine included, uh, that we need to understand, you know, how to frame training uh, in a way that can lead to unbreakable results long term, like sustainability, not just environmentally, but you know, physiologically, and and this idea of being unbreakable. What does that mean, right? Because if we interact with load, and we interact with high load, I would say that's a relative statement. Right, because a high load relative to a sagittal squat where everything is 
like you said, on lockdown and respecting one plane of motion is probably by pure absolute measures is a higher number. But sure. if you, you know, shift an old school TV, right, that was, uh, that was sitting on a shelf and uh, this thing weighed 80 pounds and it had an obscure kind of, you know, geometry to it. And it's the old school TVs with, you know, that's really thick and heavy. And I had to navigate that and I had to lift it up in an odd position, right? Uncommon position. And I had to shift it somewhere through a field of gravity away from my body, not just towards my body, but from away from my body. That relative position is at 80 pounds is pretty darn heavy. And in fact, we might say it's max, right? So you got a maximal load that has a higher number, like 305 or 405 or 505 on my back, uh, or you've got 80 pounds off of my midline somewhere. And there's equal stress and strain to the body relative to, you know, kind of joint positions and uh, leverage and levers. So, you know, you know to me, it's just, it, it's more on angulation of force, right? Can we actually start to include three-dimensional inputs of force? Because mechanotransduction, which is basically when our body receives mechanical inputs and converts it into cellular signaling and cellular modulation, that's modeling, that's growth, that's protein synthesis, that is, you know, fibroblast or osteoblast activity. I mean, these are what signals the chemistry in our, in our cells of our body to mediate responsiveness. And in order for us to do that effectively, we need the right inputs. Because all we're doing is we're telling chemistry what to do, or we're basically signaling the cells to then do something. And so these inputs become very important. And if the inputs are always the same, then we're always getting the same cell signaling. Okay, that's fine until you use the analogy of, you know, it's late in the fourth quarter. Uh, I've got to move in chaotic ways in the basketball court. Have I prepared my body for that? Uh, or even if I'm a linear athlete, right? And I organize a three-dimensional stability network, do I have more shape stability? And if the answer is, yeah, then I can actually recruit more force production because I'm more stable. But the way I got stability is I acquired it through, you know, directionality vectors that were omnidirectional to create three-dimensional shape stability of my biology. So, you know, that's skin, that's fascia. If I will have a weightlifting suit that is omnidirectional as weightlifting suits are, immediately my strength goes up. Why? More stable. And so, we often think about mechanisms of strength, but strength is always a relative conversation. Strength to what, right? Strength to body mass? Well, that's relative strength. Strength in odd positions? Well, that's odd position strength. Repeated force contraction with buffering capabilities? That's strength endurance. Maximal strength? That's either max strength or absolute strength. Uh, lifting mass or, or developing strength and, and overcoming a, a, a mass's resting inertia? That's starting strength or dead strength. So, you know, we've got all these definitions of what force production is. And at the end of the day, again, we don't take a binary, this is better than that. We're looking at all of those as interesting inputs into our biology such that we can actually improve our capabilities. And to us, that is the name of the game. We want to make folks unbreakable or, or as unbreakable as they possibly can be. And that runs the spectrum of, of health span. It, you, you just said a whole bunch of things. We'll try and unpack a few here sure. uh, from 
dead start deadlifting or uh, and not the deadlift necessarily, but from a stopping point and producing force and in any vector possible, but also sports specificity in terms of training, like the specificity of training up until this point, I feel in the years that I've been doing this for the, the past, I guess, going into the fourth decade here, it's ridiculous how long, but th there was this idea of sports specific training and really what somebody would do would they would look at somebody uh, i don't know playing tennis and they would say okay well what gym exercises would most mimic that that are somewhat similar to what they do on a tennis court and then they would call that sports specific training when in truth that is the furthest uh, I'll, yeah this is the furthest from the definition of specificity in terms of what we're talking about right now like i want to actually get the person into a sports specific position and then can i feed movement in three-dimensional ability or three-dimensional directions and all these different force vectors and can i blend them together can they laterally flex and rotate to the right can they laterally flex and rotate to the left can they can they flex forward and yet rotate right? Can they do that while laterally flexing to the left? And, and feed them into all of these different odd movements while still maintaining a sports-specific stance. So that kind of brings me back to the whole Viper or origin story because that's what I actually do with the Viper and many times is I can use that tool to drive them in different positions through different planes of motion while maintaining their stance or position that they would find themselves in their, their sport of choice. So with, with the Viper, I mean, we, we kind of got put off to a different avenue, but how did you come up with that? I mean, we were talking about farm versus gym, but where, where did the Viper come into play? Yeah. So, um, yeah, going back to this, so Simon and I, you know, we're basically looking at the the farm kids. I mean, we asked ourselves a pretty simple question, Rocky, which was, you know, why are these farm kids stronger than the city kids as it relates to transferability uh, onto the ice, right? So, uh, you know, for those that are hockey fans out there listening, uh, strength on the puck means uh, if I have the puck and you're trying to take it away from me, there's a battling situation that occurs. And when that battling situation ensues, you know, it's really, it, it, it's really a dynamic process of, you know, you and I jostling for position and it's never a static position. It's always dynamic. And, you know, footing on a dry land is different than footing with skates on, on the ice. However, you know, there's still a jostling kind of battling situation. And so uh, it's almost cliche to say this in sport, but you know, this, a lot of the toughest athletes are these rural kids. And it was very true to us in hockey. And so, you know, those that never step foot in the gym, you seem to have an advantage. And so we thought, well, we need to get our players stronger. So, you know, we have 16 weeks of off season in hockey. So our periodization models, you know, we expanded to, to allow for more strength. And so we would train these athletes in terms of strength for a little longer to try to get stronger. And the very next year, the, the same, the coaches would, get those players and we'd come to the coach and say, how are players doing? They said, pretty good. What can they improve on strengthen the puck? And we're thinking, didn't we do that? <laughs> and we have to, after a while, we asked a pretty, pretty basic question, which was, well, who's beating us to the puck? And they said, these farm kids. So at that point we looked at, well, what are they doing? Right. What are they doing? And it's bailing hay. It's chores, right? It's omnidirectional stuff with 
mass, moving livestock around the farm, moving you know, equipment around the farm, moving bales of hay and, and other mass around the farm. And you know, it's, it's not really a repeated type of scenario. If, I, if you and I dig a trench and someone films us doing that, not a whole lot of one rep looks like the other rep previous to it. It's a whole lot of every rep looks different than the previous rep. And so when we start to think about how biology self-organized that type of um, adaptation through generations and through thousands of years, you start to see, okay, well then there is a kind of an omnidirectional sub-maximal load characteristic quality uh, that is inherent within a farm kid uh, that we don't necessarily, or we didn't necessarily take advantage of. Because to your earlier point, it was sagittal and, and linear loads. So I'll, although we still love that, and I'll re, although we still do that today, uh, what we also had to include was the conversation and the narrative around you know, the idea of omnidirectional submaximal load. So as opposed to taking a bale of hay into the farm, we, we created something that was pretty darn simple uh, that had no moving parts, that had a mass of different weights of different geometries, uh, but that was super simple in design. But we could, you know, there's always an inverse relationship between you know, complexity of design and utility. The more complex the design, the more it singularly operates to one uh, objective. You know, the more simple the design, the more we can do with it, right? Look at a kettlebell, a barbell, a dumbbell. You know, a kettlebell is a bowling ball with a handle on it. We can do a variety of different things with that, right? A barbell is a, a bar with two, two saucers at the end of it. We can do a whole host of things with that too. So, you know, I think in the same vein, respectfully, uh, in the same vein, we wanted to kind of design it in that same characteristic, which is super simple, but we can start to load it in a lot of different ways as you were expressing. So it was made of rubber. It was a tube. It had some handle grips in it that we can, you know, grip it in different ways. And that was our bale of hay in the gym with a lot less straw and a lot less mess in the gym. And what that answered was the pivotal question, which was, how do we, how do we train multi-directional load in the gym? And how do we do it body-wide, not just at the spine or not just at the knee, because we don't want those things to move without, you know, the body moving. And how do we load these lines of stress so that we can fortify an athlete to be three-dimensionally tough? And that's the, that's the difference between kind of working on the horsepower of your car, which is, you know, revving the muscular system and the nervous system to produce force or to actualize express force. Uh, versus building the, the skin and the connective tissue and the, and the joint integrity in, in all three planes, which we would say is the chassis of a person's car. That's got to be a hard buy-in. Initially, when I started to gravitate more toward omni omnidirectional training and finding that there's certain places that I can put a person where their body weight is actually too much load. And we have to make it so that they can accommodate the movement with less load, whether taking some of their weight away and assisting them or whatnot. And then there'll be other areas where they move and they can add load to their body, but it's not nearly gonna be as much as that whole sagittal plane traditional lifts. So psychologically, a lot of people would be giving pushback going, well, is this really doing anything? Because uh, I, I'm not lifting with the same kind of volume that I was doing when you were having me do all the traditional lifts. And so were you finding that with your players or with your athletes, or do they just say, whatever you say, coach, this is what I'm doing? It's a good question. There's two folds I think that we experienced. The first one was with the athletes, and then the other ones were with the fitness professionals, right? The other, you know, our other colleagues, right? So let me go back. Um, I think luckily for us, 
we had uh, a lot of trust and a lot of buy-in with the athletes. And that, I can't take credit on that. That's Simon Bennett. You know, he really had uh, a lot of trust with, with the athletes that he really interacted with. And that's kudos to him. He, I mean, he's a skilled practitioner. He's a very knowledgeable individual and, you know, has immense uh, experience and knowledge and talent. And so when, you know, he was working with these individuals, had a tremendous amount of clout and credibility with them. And so when that happens, there's a little bit more leeway that, that kind of ensues. And so he and I worked with these individuals and it was almost to your point of, yeah, you know what, I'll follow your lead, no big deal. And what was interesting to us and gave us the confidence way back many moons ago to take the next step forward was, you know, working with these individuals, these professional hockey players, right? They, they make, you know, professional hockey player contracts, right? Or professional sport contracts. And they're making a lot of money and, and they need to be ready right? The best, the best ability is availability is, is what the NF, NFL strength and conditioning coaches taught me. And to a large degree, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and so they wanted to be available, these athletes. And so while we had them almost engage in the early prototypes of the product and, but more so not just the product, but the style of training, uh, what they felt tangibly real within the span of, you know, a month and a half, two months, was a transferability and they used the idea of i feel farm strong right now and um and let me just get rid of this here but i feel farm strong right now and that idea of feeling farm strong uh transferred for them into the ice and i remember you know sean horkoff like going in into spring train or well i guess they call it spring train but it was fall it's, it's their preseason right so it's in the fall and um it, so they're coming into preseason and, you know, he's, he's head and shoulders above the other players. Like he's strong in odd positions. He's feeling a capacity that he had never felt before. And he came back to us and he said, Michelle and Simon, like, I, I, I've never felt this strong as a body. I've never felt this strong. And, you know, it doesn't matter what body position I put myself in, relatively speaking, uh, I feel strong. And so that gave him the confidence to lean way into this. And then, of course, as he does with, with tremendous advocacy uh, because of experience, then, you know, other folks, well, I, I got to do that too. And then, you know, it's just a matter of numbers at that point, right? Enough people lean in and, you know, it's not all we were doing, but we certainly gave it a pretty good dose of, of omnidirectional submaximal load in accordance with all the other traditional lifts. And what they felt in their own words was this idea of being farm strong. And so the analogy rang, rang true to them. And then the experience validated that for them, right? So they began to feel farm strong and they were like, I get it. And so that just reinforced that they had to do that every year all, you know, and, and so, you know, through that trajectory, we've been very fortunate and blessed. We've been working with a lot of S and C coaches uh, whom we respect tremendously that are taking you know, this idea and really pushing it forward in ways that are logical, in ways that are intelligent, and in ways that are safe. And what they are doing is safeguarding the athlete so that that athlete can be available, right? And to, to go that to that notion of the best ability is availability, especially at the high level sport. That's but with your programming, then I'm kind of curious if you could put a percentage to this where you have traditional lifts, squat, deadlift, bench press, or whatever selection you're going to 
think of with that whole vertical loading and, and, and maximal load or near maximal, uh, what percentage is in a typical conditioning program? Um, and of course, we're if we just talk about maybe the hypertrophy phase of the periodization model, and then what percentage is made up of, we'll call it the odd lift or the farm, farm boy lifts. Yeah, there's, there's several ways. That's a great question. Um, I think like anything, the art of program design is an art. So there's many levels to that question, but I'll do my best to try to answer it from my perspective. Uh, the first one is it depends who I train, right? Or it depends who someone else is interacting with. So if it's an older adult, I would say the bias is towards odd position and not near maximal because, you know, as I age, you know, the axial load is the dark side of, of putting mass on my body top down, right? It's just going to compress my joints and, and away I go. Uh, so that's the older adult. That seems a logical answer, right? But I would also say the veteran athlete, same thing, right? We would call them the, unfortunately, older adult, <laughs> right? Because in the twilight of their career, they got the tactics, they got the mentality, they've got you know, all that in hand, but you know, to put compressive forces on their body that is now a little bit more mature and at the twilight of their athletic career, uh, we wouldn't dose it as much, right? It would be probably more of that odd position, that sort of thing, to keep them body strong. Uh, the younger athlete, maybe a little bit more to develop their, their engine, so to speak. Uh, but then again, it depends the, uh, in the sport, it depends what sport, and then it depends on position of sport. Because I might argue that your linemen, yeah, you know, put mass on them, they want to put mass on. And, and traditionally, they, they occupy, if you're a, uh, an offensive lineman, you occupy, you want fast feet, but you occupy a certain threshold of function. Uh, and that might not be the same for a defensive back or running back, right, who has to start and stop and change direction and take their mass in violently in a lot more directions uh, quickly. And so, you know, with that, uh, it would depend that all of those things would vary how much, you know, percentage an individual leans on this kind of odd position versus, you know, sagittal bias. Um, I, I would say also, though, that uh, the idea of uh, periodization that you talked about, right? So if you talk about anatomical adaptation, which is the first phase, and then strength and then power and then SAQ, what better way to anatomically adapt than three-dimensional forces submaximally? Because all you're doing there is that's, that's anatomical adaptation because you're three-dimensionally building your suit, right? Call it muscle, call it skin, call it fascia, call it bone and joint, right? Um, coordination, but even motor control. Omnidirectional patterns fortify and anatomically adapt or build that base. So even if a person wants to do that as a st starting point for clarity, because you're attaching an unknown to a known, which is, okay, during AA, anatomical adaptation, we're going to submaximal loads, omnidirectional force. Why? Well, fortifies the chassis. Then when I go to strength, which is, you know, the engine, and then power, which is revving my engine, my chassis is not going to break down, right? And so that's one way logically to look at it in, in the domain that, you know, if we're looking at it from a periodization model, uh, that can be very easily accessible and kind of easily adopted by folks. That's great. And, and it goes along with my thoughts too. In fact, I love the fact that across the age spectrum, the, the, the maximal loads on that vertical axis diminish as we age so that we can expand upon the three-dimensionality of movement. But the other thing to consider too, and, and that's kind of what we do. In fact, I, over the years, have gotten more and more away from the maximal loading of individuals 
for uh, various reasons. One is the fact that we are advancing in society at an ever alarming rate in terms of technology and the lack of purposeful physical human movement. Like the farm boys, well, that's what they do for a living. They've got to get out and move or the cows don't get taken care of, the horses or whatever. But if you're not living on a farm, it's really easy not to move your body on a regular basis. So what we see, even with the incoming athletes, we're seeing a degradation of structural integrity and, and postural alignment. And then we're going to start to try and incorporate some type of youth or adolescent strength training protocol on them when their bodies aren't really ready for it. So that omnidirectional or three-dimensional movement is actually going to be the, the fundamental foundation from which to, to begin any type of movement program. And then can we load on top of that? So I'm going to start with omnidirectional and going to slowly incorporate a little bit of strength. And then somewhere in their twenties, most likely it's going to start to taper off because they're getting near the end of their career into their early thirties. And I want more pliability. I want more, uh, I want to increase their functionality as best as possible. And it's not going to come from such maximal heavy loads. I, I'm not sure if you're, I, I think we're along the same lines there. Would you say so? Yeah, I think that's really well said. Uh, and I think there is a changing paradigm around that, which, you know, you, I would also argue that even the farm kid nowadays is not the farm kid of the past because they're sitting in tractors, you know, and they're, and machinery is servicing the cow, right? Exactly. So to your point about, you know, the cows are not going to get fed, you're right. But, you know, I think we're, you and I were talking about like three generations ago, right? Which, which now amplifies your point which is now the art of movement is a lost art, right? And then, and then, you know, COVID and, you know, the pandemic, and now people are not taking steps to go to their car to go to work anymore. So now they're staying at home. And so step counts are going down. And when step counts are going down, stress on the body goes down. And when stress on the body goes down, signaling goes down, or at least remodeling signaling goes down. And so autophagy or, you know, osteoclast activity or anything else that's going to break the body down goes up. And so the net effect is our body is not as resilient anymore. Why? Because like any other biological system, we got to stress it within the right dosage. We got to stress it to improve it. Right. Uh, and we're one of the few things in, 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 in existence, right. That does that. If I stress this hat, it's only going to get worse. Right. If I stress this chair I'm sitting on, it's only going to get worse. But if I stress the body within parameters that are healthy and normal, it's going to get better, right? If I don't stress it enough or I stress it too much chronically, then there's a different conversation. But we need to stress it. And so the idea upon stress is not just high load as a number in the sagittal plane. Because what we're fixated on, I think, and I'll include myself too, is we're fixated on the number. What's the high load? And I would say... The heaviest low we got for Viper Pro is 70 pounds or 32 kilograms, right? And if I said that to the average person who has any gym experience or a strength conditioning experience, what's the first thing you're going to say back to me, Rocky? It's not heavy enough. <laughs> and I'd say, true, if I'm deadlifting that, you're completely right, right? But if I'm taking a 70 pound mass and I'm taking it in an odd position, I would love to see if that can be done by even the strongest of individuals because I can't do it. And, you know, and those that we interact with, even strong men, right, and strong women. Uh, but, I, you know, there's a, a couple of strongman competitors that are on our team that are massively strong. And, you know, they can do certain things, but they can't do other things with a 70 pound mass because that number of 70 
if I start to lift it in an, an odd position, right, and it's asymmetrically loaded off of my midline, think about taking a bale of hay and shoving it to your side as far as your arms will go and then doing a sagittal lunge with it. You'd never be able to do it because you'd never be able to harness that much stability and that much force when the leverage is that much away from the body. So what I think we're fixated on is the number. And to get the number high, we've got to bring everything symmetrical. It's got to be close to the midline of our body and everything has to be sagittal dominant to get that number high. If yeah, we're okay go getting that number lower, right? Then it still is max strength, right? It's just, it's a weird position, right? And it still is super high force. It's just a weird position because a weird position, that number, that masses number, right? Whatever we're interacting with has to go down. And the cool part about what, if we're okay with that is that it does wonders for adaptation. Yeah, now the, the shift that I had over the last several years is no longer being fixated with a number so much as with the quality of movement, which led me much more into understanding what the skeletal frame should be doing at any given moment for any movement. Because if those joints, if those bones are not moving at the right timing pattern in the right direction at just the right time, then those muscles aren't going to load properly. We're going to start to see a, some type of other way of doing it, which is going to bring about compensation, which is going to just continually reinforce improper ways, I will say, or compromise strategies, which are going to create stress points where we don't want them. And, and Getting fixated on, yeah, what your one repetition max is and working off a certain percentage of that, we lose track with what is really important. And, then, and that for me is clean movements, efficient movements, structural integrity, proper alignment of every joint and, and how they kinematically work together sequentially in a timing sequence. And honestly, not to, to pump your, your products anymore than, than how great they are, but that's where I find that tool coming in very readily. Very, it's a very handsome way of achieving that goal when I need load in a certain position. Yeah, and that, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. And, and we hope that that is the way that people look at the tool. You know, a lot of times, and I don't blame them, when they, when they approach an unknown tool, they try to attach a known to an unknown. So with our product, they grab it and they do two bicep curls with it and two shoulder presses with it and put it down. And... I've got to be honest, respectfully, I, I might do the same thing. Because if I don't know the product, I grab it in kind of the double handle and it kind of senses like a barbell. And what do I do with the barbell? I, you know, I'd, I'd crack off some bicep curls and maybe some shoulder presses. And then they put it down. They think it's not too heavy or not heavy enough. And I get, listen, I get that perspective, but that's not what we're trying to represent here. And I would value the fact that we would look at a tool like ours or anything like forget the tool like if it sounds too self-indulgent that i'm just trying to push something grab a tree branch right and with that tree branch try to load the body in different ways so that that input can trigger a physiological result and i think what you're stressing should be stressed which is the idea of joint integrity the idea of motor control motor control uh, uh, needs to possess two things they, the, the action potential needs to be turned on and also turned off. So another, for me to have motor control, the, the nervous system has to upregulate an action potential and then downregulate it. 
So muscles need to turn off for me to move properly. Because if they don't turn off, then I am locked into approximation of a joint or you know, it just doesn't allow ensuing momentum to occur, right? So if you're going to run fast, your muscles better turn off quick, right? Because on is slow and off is quick. If I'm going to fall at 87, I better have my nervous system have the capacity to turn off quick. Now, that seems almost uh, opposite to logic. No, you want everything to be turned on. No, no, no. You want things to turn off quick because that improves motor uh, well, movement literacy and, mood, and movement outcomes, right? So the idea of motor control, in this being off, allows better movement quality, right? Because our bodies can relax into the movement. It's only when there's instability and threat does the nervous system stay on for too long. And when that happens, we don't move that well. In fact, we're in a threatened position of, of an increased risk of injury. Just walk on ice, right? What does the nervous system reflexively do? Everything's on, right? As a mechanism to protect. And that's not good movement. So you're right. If we fortify the skin through lines of stress, if we, and that's shape stabilizing. If we fortify fascia, which is omnidirectionally laid down like a three-dimensional spider web, uh, that, that creates shape stability. Uh, if we organize motor control, muscular task-driven, three-dimensional task-driven outcomes, which muscles are task-driven, look at all the seminal work by the, you know, by Stanford University in the early 80s, Zajac and Gordon and all that research team, right? Muscles are task-driven. So give them a task, get the motor and the, the, the neuromuscular system to coordinate those tasks in an appropriate task-specific way. That is going to do wonders. Now, you're right, joint control, right? Allowing the joints to have an optimal instantaneous axis of rotation, meaning they're in the right place at the right time. Why? Because we train them that way. Why? Because we train movement, right? And we loaded movement and we loaded odd positions. This is the antidote to a threatening environment for the body. I think any strength and conditioning coach or any exercise physiology, physiologist worth their grain of salt would advocate for the ability that we need to stress a system within the right kind of levels of progression in order to create a positive outcome of sustainability and resiliency. You mentioned the autonomic system or the threat response, and we actually will assess clients before and after every movement that they're achieving. And does it give us a threat response? Does that reduce their range of motion? Does it reduce their peripheral vision or their ability to balance on a single leg or, or any range of motion in their body? What is that like? It, and it will affect their gait if you're keen enough to really look at gait and figure out what's going on. You can see it instantly affect them if there is too much load or, or whatever the body is considered a threat. However, on the opposite end of that, you give them a movement that the body needs that it is, it's almost thirsting for. And then suddenly they're in that zone where their range of motion has increased, their balance has increased, their peripheral vision, no longer so tunnel vision, but they have a broader spectrum of which they can see. It's really quite interesting how we, as an industry, we've only harnessed the autonomic nervous system as a regulator or a barometer through a heart rate monitor or maybe blood pressure, but there's so many other ways in which we can do it. And honestly, Michelle, what I find is by doing omnidirectional movements, that incites more often the, the zone response of the balance between sympathetic, parasympathetic, and getting them right in that middle spot than any other kind of 
traditional lifts. Most of the time, to be honest, the traditional lifts are going to inspire more of a threat response, and I'm not going to get that same outcome in the assessments. And you, you are part of, or your company is the Institute of Motion, and we haven't even brought that up. Um, we can geek out, obviously, on biomechanics all day long, but tell me, if people want to learn from you and these concepts that we've been kind of bantering back and forth, Institute of Motion, wh what's that all about? Uh, so yeah, into IOM, which, you know, so there's obviously the product company of, of Viper Pro, which, um, you know, actually, you know what people can dig in if they go, if they go, if they go to viper.com, so VIPR.com and, you know, forget about, you know, me trying to push my own agenda here. If folks want to go on there and just look at the, the, the sport programs and some of the other programs and just look at them for the impact of what they make for preparation and performance, irrespective of any product or any mass or any, look at the logic behind that. And, you know, we feel it's game-changing stuff, right? Because we do deep core stabilization uh, through uh, forced exhalation and percussive, well, forced breathing and percussive breathing. We do eye tracking, we do foot corkscrew patterns, we do hip and thoracic spine. This prepares the individual. Then we go through different levels of, of strength training and then we dissect power in its constituent parts for this idea of force expressed and, uh, and, and just you know, the, the, uh, the amount of force that we can generate through strength. So that's all there. Uh, with IOM, um, we are an applied health and human performance company. And as an applied health and human performance company, we create strategies and education and tech solutions towards fitness, uh, healthcare, and performance. And so what that means is that we want to look at health as well as human performance and understand the nexus of those because they're not necessarily the, th the same thing. And that informs our strategy, that informs our logic and education, and that informs our solutions, be it tech or others. Um, that we've come up with. So I'll give you a great example, right? Health and human performance, like being fit doesn't necessarily mean a person's healthy, <laughs> right? And then that's really a basic kind of tenant that we hold on to is that just because a person's fit does not necessarily mean they're healthy. And a lot of individuals that are fit, very fit are not healthy at all. And training that way to be fit is fine. There's no judgment there, but it doesn't necessarily mean training to be healthy. Uh, because in fitness right now, it's very trend-based, just like fashion. I always say that fashion and fitness are both trend-based, right? And what we used to do 10 years ago or even five years ago may be in complete conflict with the flavor of the day and the viewpoint of the day, um, but it seems to shift, right? And what we look at is the organization of biology against the trends of health and fitness. So one of the trends obviously in fitness is high, high intensity training, right? So that's all good because it does a whole host of different things, which is great. Um, but if, we, if our dose response, and we're big advocates of high intensity training too, but if the dose response is, is, is only that, and we don't get any metabolic flexibility, meaning we're not doing low intensity, either steady state or in, interval-based work, then you know we start to signal certain pathways in our body that lead to autophagy, that lead to, you know, excessive protein turnover, leads to, you know, different interleukin activity that is immunosuppressing. Uh, then a person starts to, you know, 
be sick. And, and that, again, that's chronic, right? But the idea is if all we uh, covet is this uh, one flavor of training, we may be missing out on the health implications of that. And so that's kind of at the core of who we are. We're an applied health and human performance company. So we look at health and human performance equally and saying what strategies and what solutions and what viewpoints characterize both of those things so we can be considerate of both in order to make the best decisions for ourselves and, and those that we serve. Do you work with hospitals or medical clinics of any sort? We, we do, but more on the prevention side. So when I say healthcare, we're not on the reactionary medical side. Uh, we're on the prevention side of the ledger. So we do a lot of coaching, right? So prevention health coaching. Uh, and we also inform a lot of uh, programming solutions that are lifestyle behavior change, as well as programming for individuals that consider what we call variability. So we do. In fact, uh, we work with uh, some companies over in Asia, uh, I, companies, some countries over in Asia to do population health for a large swath of their population. And so by virtue of that, we connect with the, the medical side of the ledger um, and what we're you know, ultimately continuing to do is push the idea of what does health span look like for a person's lifespan? Because we're always, we're, all of us are going to navigate a medical experience, unfortunately, in our lives, hopefully not that much, uh, but we all are going to be ushered into that. And what we hope is that we have a lot of prevention in our, in our lifespan. So the health span of our life is rich. And the treatment, the care, the palliative care that we have is limited. That is a blessed life, at least from a health perspective. And so we look at that in combination with the medical community in order to look at a person's lifespan and say, how much health or health span can we map to their lifespan? And what strategies and, and perspectives ensue? And what environments, you know, what infrastructure can we put in place uh, to enrich the the um, the the you know the, the the outcomes or at least you know the the chances of of them living a rich healthy life uh, what do those environments look like and so that's kind of you know what IOM does at a, at a broad level oh just easy as can be right yes yeah no it's, it's multifaceted oh my gosh it's, it's interesting I mean it is a big animal but you know I, I kind of like I'm a big thinker anyway I'm a dreamer so. Uh, it's a big animal and we're taking bite sizes. We're working with a, a lot of incredible colleagues and partners and collaborators uh, that we use as leverage points and we're blessed to be able to work with them. But yeah, these are big conversations. And uh, you know, I think what's kind of cool about coming from fitness, even strength conditioning is you know, a lot of times while they're in that silo, a lot of the information that is, is given in, in that world needs to be shared with others. And so, you know, as, as those perspectives, as the voices, the collective voices within these industries expand, uh, that's only to the benefit of all of us. And so, you know, we're, we're big on that as well as a collaboration. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's to actually get some healthcare or wellness care, like say not the reactionary medical care, but to, to start to do some preventative maintenance or just prevention in self is, well, it, it's needed for sure. I, I got one more question and it dates, it goes back to the Viper. I, I never understood the name. Where did that come from? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually an acronym. Uh, originally, you know, we kind of used the it, vitality, performance and reconditioning. 
as kind of a, you know, a, a true north, if you were. Uh, but yeah, that's the acronym. So VIPR, Vitality Performance and Reconditioning. But, you know, I think as we've evolved, it's become so much more than just that. Really what it is, is, you know, it's a, it's a tool, it's a mass. And it's a mass that is intended to load the body omnidirectionally uh, in different ways in order to elicit, you know, functional outcomes. And, um, you know, that's, uh, we're, we're, it's interesting because even that, even the narrative and the outcomes is, is still starting. It's still, it's still taking shape. And I guess that's exciting because we're still on the front end of this, but uh, there are a lot of voices at the table advocating for this and, and you're one of them, Rocky. So we appreciate, you know, you having the perspective, you know, it's funny, I was talking and then you would, you would kind of add your comments to it. I'm thinking to myself, Rocky's saying it better than I am, right? You should just, I took 10 minutes. You're, you're doing a synopsis in three minutes and it's, it's more clear and, and more to the point, but you know, it's important for us to have that voice of, of, uh, and that perspective. I think we're not big binary thinkers. We, we love the sagittal plane, <laughs> right? We think it's awesome. Uh, but we're not stuck on that mindset alone. Right. And we respect what has been done in the past respectfully, you know, that's been awesome. And what we try to do is everything's along a continuum. Biology operates along a continuum. And if we can understand the continuum, it starts to give us a lot of, you know, a lot of fodder for what we want to do. So this has been phenomenal. Michelle, I, I just can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day and being on with me. This has been a great learning experience for me, for sure. And I'm sure with the listening audience as well. If people want to find out more about you, of course, there's instituteofmotion.com and then yeah, the Institute. other website with Viper. Yeah, instituteofmotion.com. You can learn about our AWHPS program, which is an applied health and human performance specialist, uh, or viper.com, uh, which is the other one that you can find more information on, you know, the product, but also what we do with it too. Well, let's, let's hope that the Long Beach Conference happens for Perform Better, because I have a feeling that uh, there, there's a lunch in it for you somewhere with me, if, if that's the case. I would love it. And, uh, you know, you keep doing what you're doing, Rocky. You know, uh, blessed that you had me on. I appreciate that. And, you know, good luck as you navigate uh, the next bunch of months ahead. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate you reaching out. I appreciate your perspective and your voice within the collective because I think it's needed. And, um, you know, it was a real pleasure for me to share the, the hour with you. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I just want to thank Michelle Delcor with the Institute of Motion for coming on and spending an hour with us. And if you're liking these shows, be sure to write a review if you would. Tell some friends and colleagues and, of course, subscribe to the channel. Because if you missed last week, we had Ed Strite on. He's the Los Angeles Lakers NBA champion, LA Lakers, by the way, assistant strength conditioning coach. We had a great time with him. And then next week, we're staying in LA and we're going to be talking to the first woman to be in Major League Baseball as a coach, as a trainer, Sue Falzoni. We'll see you then.